Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. Hello, everybody. It's Liam. Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to welcome anyone who's new to the show. Um, If you're a a fan of One Heat Minute or any of the podcasts featuring this week's guest, Blake Howard, um, this is our third season. Our first season, we explored the oeuvre of John Cassavetes. Um, And in our second season, we looked at 15 or 16 films, give or take, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman. And this season is, of course, on Batman. But they're all available to you wherever you get podcasts, um, uberbusters.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter, Twitter, (laughs) on Twitter. Um, And follow us and say hi to us. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Bye-bye. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fergabalos. And I'm Blake Howard. <gasps> Another special guest. And this is... Oeuvre. Busters. Yes. Totally nailed it, Blake. Thanks. Amazing. Appreciate it. I'll be here all week. <laughs> I live in this... I, I, live in a, I live in a pan-national world where I constantly <laughs> am speaking to folks in either Los Angeles or New York City. And so it's nice to be in... <laughs> Now yeah. three places at once. Pandemic national world, if if you will. If you yeah. will. Sorry, I couldn't. You almost made me spit my coke up. on my uh, board here, but thank you. <laughs> thank you for that perfectly timed Please joke. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. We'll feel terrible. Um, so we're, Blake, we're really excited to have well, you. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, I want... I want to give a quick, if you don't mind, I'd like to give a quick uh, introduction. You're a writer, podcaster, and the editor-in-chief of co- and co-founder of the Australian film blog, Graffiti with Punctuation. And I first heard about your podcast, One Heat Minute, which is a minute-by-minute dissection of heat. And the first time I heard of that, I was like, this this is like literally makes sense. I cannot <laughs> think of a movie more deserving of a minute-by-minute dissection than heat. So love that show. Um, I, ca- I, I The first one I listened to or the first one that I heard was... Um, I worked backwards. I heard the Michael Mann episode first. <laughs> yeah, well, that 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 once that was released, I think that's a that's the entry point. And unfortunately, it's like, guys, that's that's it. That's that's as good as this show gets. <laughs> well, what was cool about it? What was cool about it is that I then got to go backwards and start at the beginning, and was just like, oh my god, like I have literally as many hours or close to hours of content about heat as I could possibly I could possibly imagine. So I was psyched. And also you did the last twelve minutes of the Mohegans. Yes. Which is 
it kind of describes itself. And great, great um, title. Now it's such a great title. And then all the president's minutes, which if there's ever another movie that deserves a minute, minute, minute by minute dissection, I think it's all the president's minutes or all the president's men. Um, what are you going to do next? Zodiac. Uh, Liam. <laughs> there are, uh, so right now, One Hit Minute Productions currently has another great podcast on there called Increment Vice, which is hosted by an yes. amazing uh, like pilot of that show. I'm just the producer in the background, uh, Travis Woods. And so that is our focus right now is Increment Vice. And there's a little bonus six episode series. My best friend, Maria, who's a uh, Maria Lewis, who's a journalist and author. We're doing a six episode limited series called Josie and the Podcats, which is a just a six episode (laughs) history of. So that's there. They're what's next. And you are now like the latest podcast of you are part of very, uh, rarefied company brian koppelman one of the writers and showrunners of um, uh, of billions and the co-writer brian, hit me the, up, co- the co-writer of rounders manola dargis uh, uh the chief critic film critic of the new york times who are both shouting that the next podcast i need to do a minute by minute analysis on is zodiac so look all i will say is there are other projects that are in the wings um I've, and i and okay. i obsessively watch films and some tv shows and and right now in a pandemic, uh, my brain is ticking over faster than it ever has before. So I'm very likely to announce new projects soon. But that is definitely one of the ones that is in consideration. It's a flat out masterpiece. <sighs> nice. And I just rewatched it for the 50th time with my wife last week. And I felt like she she really liked it. But I was just like sitting there talking through the entire thing like, oh. Ugh, and I think like, by the end of it, she, was she like, "I can't believe you've seen this film fifty times." <laughs> <laughs> Is there something terribly, terribly wrong with you, Blake? Can I just ask you, just very briefly, yes. what gave you the idea of doing a kind of minute by minute breakdown of a film in general because it sounds like a really fascinating kind of durational project? Yeah, it is. Look, I would say I have to take. The, the credit is with, you know, I, the Star Wars minute is what I call like the Ur text. It's like the OG. And those guys right. were an inspiration. It, it started out literally with the, it's like the itch that could never be scratched. It's the thirst that could never be satiated that I loved this movie so much. And I was constantly drawn back to it. Um, and I hadn't really articulated that to anyone until like a couple of my best mates and I were sitting down and I was shooting the shit about what the next project I wanted to undertake was. And, you know, they had a bit of like a come to Jesus moment. Like, what do you want to do? Like, what do you want to do? And just kept mm. asking me that until I essentially relented and like broke through to, you know, what I perhaps had like shamefully hoarded, which is like, I just want to, you know, excuse me for swearing, but I was just like, I just want to fucking talk about heat all Fuck day. It. Yeah, no, please do. And so yeah. when I said that, my one of my very good friends did the worst and best thing anyone could have ever done in my life. They he just said that's a show I'd listen to. And so as soon as that happened, it just became, well, how do you do that? So to your point, right. George, is like, how do you do it? It's like, well, you know, it's a long movie. You want to make sure you cover everything. How do you determine what you would do? And it's like, well, maybe a minute's there. And then as you know, when you just when you say one heat minute, it's like, oh, like. It writes, it writes itself. And so it's like, well, if, if I, if I've got anything left to say after 166 minutes of this movie pre-credits, then like, I haven't done a good job. I thought that, that would be exhaustive. And so then it, it just sort of happened that way. And I really found, you know, it's such a, such a really cool way to 
unpack something and it really tests scrutiny. And for me, it just like trained my brain so that now when I watch a movie or especially when I obsessively watch them, I, I wonder, is this a personal sort of shameful secret corner, you know, comfort food movie that has flaws that, or is this something that's perfection? And that's kind of what like scratched me mm. with all the president's men, which is another absolute flat out masterpiece is that I, I just was obsessed with that as a formal thing. And, and because I love heat so much and have an affinity for their obsessive characters, the obsessive nature of the characters and the obsessive nature of the director and the obsessive nature with which it has been put together just seemed to all complement those things. And then drew me this great crew of incredibly obsessive heat obsessives uh, along the journey. So yeah, that's, that's, I think that's what I, I just couldn't fathom doing it an injustice by not having a way to talk about it in the level of detail that I wanted. Speaking of obsessive, you are the perfect guest to talk about yes. today's film, which is, uh, I would say, in conversation with Heat. And that film is George. What film are we talking about? So today, Liam, we are discussing The Dark Knight from the year of our Lord, <laughs> 2008. 2008. Sorry, I just had to quickly look it up. Uh, starring uh, Christian Bale, Heath Ledger, Michael Caine, Aaron Eckhart, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. So as far Gary as Gary Oldman, Gary Oldman, Gary Oldman, <laughs> who Liam William Fichtner in a small role. I Liam I gotta... sacrilegiously said is the best part of this film, which we need to also kind of talk about. Outrageous, outrageous hot takes from Liam. There's going to be a whole bunch of hot takes. There's a very good chance also that. About five minutes in, me and Liam are just going to start yelling at each other over over <laughs> over, uh, over Blake. Fight. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> so, as far as a quick uh, plot summary, so the Dark Knight picks up pretty much where Batman Begins ends, with the emergence of the Joker as a criminal mastermind and as kind of this uh, master foil to Batman as a character. So the film begins with this masterful heist, which I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about. Um, and it really kind of takes up from there and you learn that basically what's been going on is that the Joker has been stealing money from mob bosses in an attempt to kind of just sow chaos and obviously to get all these mob bosses on his side to eventually kill the Batman. We're also introduced to Harvey Dent, who is the Gotham district attorney, who is busy doing what district attorneys do, trying to put bad guys away. He is dating Rachel, who is Bruce Wayne's former love interest, who in the first (laughs) film is played by Liam. Katie, Katie Holmes. Katie Holmes. And we'll maybe talk about Maggie <laughs> versus Katie. Um, and then Dent Maggie v. Katie. Maggie v. Katie. And then Dent eventually becomes Two-Face, and Batman has to contend with both of these villains, who in some sort of way represent different aspects of his own identity. Pretty good. Thank you. I, I, good. I, too, am a professional, Liam. At least when I'm You're a professional. Yeah, you're doing in great. He, in <laughs> he parlance, um, pretty fucking great. Pretty fucking great. Pretty fucking um, great. Before we jump in, Blake, I, I understand you're a big Batman mm. fan. What 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 sparked your Batman love? Uh, Batman sixty six. Uh, Batman sixty six is my great love in Australia. It was played in the afternoons after school when I was in primary school okay. uh, in syndication, and so I saw Batman then and obsessively loved Batman from that moment. And then I think like maybe some of the guests even of this show um, you, as, and the host of this show rather, um, it's, you know, I had that 1989 Batman watershed moment. I think it was mm-hmm. like the second or the first movie I ever saw at the big screen and I just obsessively loved 
him ever since. And so I've been a huge comic book, avid comic book fan of like a whole bunch of different runs um, and, and things like that. And I love all the movies and have obsessed over them. And I particularly love the Chris Nolan uh, Batmans, uh, uh, you know, very obsessively, but I'm not, I'm not exclusively in love with those. Like I, I, I think Batman returns is a flat out masterpiece. I think it's way better than 89. Um, I love Batman, the animated series and pound for pound episode for episode, you know, the adaptions and the interpretations of comic books, like they just teach, they should be taught how to adapt comic book stories into anything because they just choose really carefully about what's their universe and how to sort of express it. Um, And I unabashedly love going back to Batman 66. And in fact, I show my kids Batman 66 because it's just adorable. It's one of the funniest shows ever made. Um, And it's underrated. You don't realize that it's a complete joke and everyone's in on it, but I mean, Cesar Romero painted his moustache for Christ's sake. It's hilarious. It's like yeah, that's all. You, it's, it's just the those. It's just the best. Like I, 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 I could I could watch every episode of that show. I love how warm it is and and like falsely earnest and like without winking. It's totally winking at the whole audience the whole time. It's just it's brilliant. Um, but yeah, so I I I love Batman, and I even. I even really, really like Ben Affleck's performance in uh, Batman v Superman. I think he's a great Batman, real cynical, hard-edged, great Batman. Um, The movie is very, very compromised, but he's a terrific Batman in it. So, like, uh, yeah, he is really good. He's he's a great Bruce Wayne too. He he's got the right vibe. Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of Kilmer in Batman Forever though. A lot of people are like that might find that sacrilegious. I'm sorry, but he also made a movie for Warner Brothers in 1995 in the same year, and it's called Heat. And uh, he's that's his best performance. So you can all well, he's sleepwalking through one of those. Yeah, movies. He's, let's he just was, put it that way. I he was also the Iceman though in Top Gun. We can't forget that. No, we can't. True, but yeah, true. Is he in uh, Top Gun too? He must be right. Yeah. He's in Top I Gun too. So. I, I don't think they'd get oh, away I with hope that so. somehow. Hopefully he's there. I liked. I, I didn't mind Affleck's uh, Batman, but all like all every time he'd stop and like stare into the screen and talk about the Red Sox, it was really fucking <laughs> distracting. I was like, this, this do the Red Sox even exist in the DC universe? I don't like. It was really so really. I think it was. I think it was. I think it was Gotham Rogues monologues. Um, <laughs> that's what I think. God damn it, George. We should also, um, by the way, maybe at the very end, rank our Jokers. Ooh, that's interesting. That's interesting idea that's mm. a that's a good idea i like that well we all can kind of agree that this movie fucking rules yeah. right i it's feel like we banger. should just get that yeah Fuck, i think yeah. it's um it's, it's i think batman it's, undenied, be it's undeniably the best comic book movie ever made hmm it's it, i would i, I want really to disagree go, i go back and forth between this movie and batman returns like yeah every time i watch yeah. one of yeah. them uh, i i but, i think the uh i occasionally am a f- like film critic for a an enduring awesome Australian website institution called Dark Horizons, which has been like, it's like 22 Mm -hmm. years old in the movie news beers online. And uh, Garth does this great feature. Um, I'll try and send you guys a link so you can throw it up in the description of this podcast. It's where he, uh, he sort of ranks every single comic book movie that's ever been made. And he uses like an aggregate score of IMDb scores of Metacritic and of Rotten Tomatoes and kind of has like a little mathematical equation to go, okay, what's the top and the number one undeniable, film in that list is the dark Knight. Like it's number one. It's been number one for like, I think five years yeah. on that list. And Garth like periodically updates it and refreshes it and brings it back into the current features. And I'm just like, yeah, like it's, it's pretty much the best. Like for me personally, like I think the best three, if I had to rate like pound for pound, the top three, I think it's like dark Knight, um, 
Superman, the original, like Richard Donner Superman mm. one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would almost say Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Like, I think that that is just out of control. The Spider-Verse is incredible. So Spider-Verse movie, is, yeah. is, is, is like legit. It's, and, 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 and I've got a little, I know that you've got a little one, Liam, and like, I've got little ones and my daughter will watch Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So we've like religiously watched it many, many times and I'm, it, it loses none of its yeah. power. Like I just, it, I think it's just so I gotta good. show that. I gotta show that to her. That's a good, that's a good. I may be a bad father. A so good. just do not listen to anything I show no, my no, children. No, 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 no. I, I, <laughs> I I'm trying to get my kid to watch. I tried to get her to watch the Zodiac? red balloon on the Criterion <laughs> channel the other day. And like two minutes in, she was like, I want Elmo. And I was like, God damn feeling as a parent. You're such a Philistine. <laughs> that's something very, very wrong. <laughs> it's like, honey, we're going to sit down today and we're going to watch Zodiac. Okay. I'm going to start you on something Fincher-like. We're going to put you on the game. The game There first. will be blood, and you're going to like it. There's a child your age. Um, I think the thing that makes this movie work so goddamn... was because I re-watched it earlier this week, and I, I, re- I think the, mo- the previous time I'd watched it was about two years ago, and I'm completely blown away by how he's able to take a superhero story and make it like an absolute like reflection of the times that we live in. Like, I think that that's an, you know, this is a great superhero movie, but I also think it's one of the best post 9-11 America movies or world movies ever made, depending on how you look at it. And I'm like completely astonished by, you know, George and I sort of jokingly went back and forth on the politics of this movie, but I think what what ultimately, I think the starting point, and I I think it is interesting to relate it to Heat, which is obviously a huge influence on this movie starting from the first frame, (laughs) is how they're both both movies are sort of about two professionals, two professionals or two, you know, highly sophisticated people coming at each other, having to deal with one each other. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about Heat is that it, it doesn't for, it doesn't foreground the politics, whereas I think The Dark Knight is, as like a text, is very clearly making a making making political references or 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 very clearly asking us to think about things that are happening and i i just found it such a stunning take on that stuff without necessarily offering a a right or wrong to anything that you're seeing in the film which i think makes it really work as an as like a piece of filmmaking and storytelling yeah there's a nolan's got a great uh ability to sort of just talk about humanity via the prism of morality and try and, and then he can dance around like political illusions. Like I think my, you know, I, I, I go tit for tat cause I genuinely adore the dark Knight rises for many reasons. Um, and I love that that is so overtly political. Like it's like, it's like yeah. the, the aggressive occupy wall street, you know, movie. Um, uh, where, you know, people are riding in the streets and things are getting cut off and shut down. Like, oh, actually might be a pretty good pandemic watch. Um, but, uh, yeah. I think it's going to be an amazing <laughs> pandemic watch. It's just one of those things. But, yeah, look, um, uh, I think Michael Mann talked about, I'm lucky enough to have spoken to him about Heat, and, you know, when he talks about the characters played by Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, Vincent Hanna and Neil McCauley, he talks about two guys who are the most similar to one another in the entire universe. And I think that... Mm-hmm. Um, Nolan riffs on that. Like for him, the the professional, the lure for the professional is less. It's about he he has this thing where he loves he loves people who are like self duplicitous. Like they lie to themselves deeply about mm. something. Like that's just 
runs through his characters, his yes. entire lineage. His movies are about male anxiety in that yeah. way, I think, very and, particularly. And the and the gap between perception and reality. You know, so like Right. And that's what is so great about the Joker is the Joker is theatrical. The Joker is chaotic. The Joker is counter to his ecosystem. And he's hyper aware of all those facts. Whereas Batman is theatrical and he is like counter to his system because ultimately he's a vigilante and he's executing this sort of his own vigilante justice over, over and above. And the Joker like puts that to him. He's like, you're not like them. You're like me, you know, like he's like, you're not like them. We're like, we're alike. Like, don't you understand? And so I love, yeah. I love that relationship between the both of them because it's like, this is where Batman gets held to account for what he is. Like, this is what you are. Um, and yeah, so it's very cool. Like, I think someone, I, I can't remember who I heard it from. It might've been Kevin Smith where he said like Dark Knight on one of his first watches reminded me of the French connection. And I think that that's a very good, Ooh. that's a good, that's a good comparison because you talk about films that are engaging in political ideology whilst they're sort of trying to entertain the shit out of you. I think that that's a great example because, you know, the world of Popeye Doyle is, you know, it's politics is are worn brazenly on its sleeves. So I think that, I think that that's where you can kind of see some of that with, uh, with Nolan making a tangible world. It's funny that you bring the French connection up because I watched it about a week ago for the first time in a couple of years. And I was blown away at how, in a, in a similar way to, to heat it, it deals with, it's another film that doesn't speechify about politics, but the politics are laid bare in the in the in the in who he interacts with and who he uses his power over and who he's unable to use his power over. But also yeah. just in terms of like just the fact that he's eating dollar pizza and drinking shitty coffee while his mark is, you know, in a French restaurant eating incredibly well says a lot of really, really interesting things about class in and and who who has power in those it's just very very interesting do you guys feel like watching the film now or george i guess i'm curious what you think a little bit too do you guys feel like watching the film now your the politics feel different than they did when it came out me personally no i mean i feel it's still very contemporary um and in many respects obviously a lot of the things that it does address whether directly or obliquely, politically speaking, are still things we're very much living with. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so in a, it's funny you should say that also too, because in a weird way, I was like, oh, 2008, like this film feels, like when I just remember thinking about the date, I was like, I can't believe this film was 12 years old. But then in many other ways, watching it again, I was like, oh no, this this thing could have been released a year or two ago. Um, so f- I mean, it's a very, so in many respects, it kind of, it does feel, I mean, again, dated is the wrong word, but there are like those very explicit references, I think, to post nine eleven, like Bush's America. So that scene, for example, of rendition is really kind of fascinating and harrowing to kind of which scene the so when uh, Batman goes to Hong Kong to bring back oh, yes. Lao, um, and it becomes this kind of not just a a vigilante, but a kind of international vigilante. <laughs> yes, which is really kind of fascinating, uh, but again, also politically troubling. So those kind of things are are obviously issues that we're still living with today, issues of class inequality, issues of um, chaos uh, in chaos in law or chaos is kind of opposed to order versus chaos. Yeah. Which I really think we should get into because I think that that's a. When we were arguing about this movie, George, you said chaos and order are abstractions. They okay, and yes, thank you. Because in this you're film, welcome. when this I'm film here to help, when this film it fails. <laughs> For me, at least, 
politically speaking, ideologically speaking, is when it is when it deals with those concepts as abstractions. Interesting. I don't I so I'm curious what you guys think about that, because I feel like this ties very, very closely to the one of the things that's so interesting about this film is that the Joker supposedly doesn't have a point of view, but I disagree with that reading of the character entirely. I think that that's very simplistic. Yes. Well, there's like no, sorry, we... there's no origin, which is also troubling. Because it's, why is it troubling? Because again, it doesn't ground the ideology. It doesn't, okay. it doesn't ground, let's say the urge towards chaos. This is not, by the way, an argument that I have made. It's an argument that like other people have made mm-hmm. in a far more sophisticated way. But just the idea, obviously, that, and this is where I was talking about like the abstraction. So if the, let's say, the evil or the chaos is coming from this place of uh, non-specificity, that there's nothing actually there compelling it, then it's just pure evil and it has no ideological basis and it should just be utterly destroyed. I, so think, I think that's the biggest. I think Nolan Go is. Ahead. I think Nolan is. Uh... Nolan views characters sometimes like for, like a force of nature. Like he's always talked about mm-hmm. the Joker as like he describes him as like a, a a a human equivalent of the shark from Jaws. So like, you know, it's like impulse and id and whatever you want. And I I definitely agree that like the abstraction sometimes makes it more scary and it, 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 but I I I think it, an origin an origin for evil and this is the best way I can describe it. Maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, people might have gone, you know who's the best villain who's ever existed ever? Darth Vader. He is just the best villain you've mm. ever seen, right? Now, he's a fucking snot. Like, Anakin Skywalker is such a twerp. Who gives a shit? I hate his dumb family. I hate everything about Star Wars. Everyone can just burn it all and just go back and get me those 35mm prints and I'll watch Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and then we can just torch the rest and And burn everything. And The Last Jedi. Oh, The Last Jedi, yeah, we can keep that. Uh... Yeah, it's it's just absolutely garbage. And all this navel-gazing nonsense about his villainy and his origin doesn't do anything to complement the story. In fact, it completely undercuts it and people have to write around it. And God, people in that Star Wars camp won't shut the fuck up about rewriting this story in ancillary ways. So I adore the abstraction. I love it. Yeah. Conversely to... Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, which I don't think is nearly one of his best performances, nor one of his best films. Uh, I don't, I don't want to see that the clown prince of crime, the arch nemesis of Batman, this towering psychopath and also genius, you know, like washes his mum in the tub. Like I don't need to see that shit, and I don't care. Like I don't want him to be a whiny loser baby. Like I don't want that. I want. The shark from Jaws. I want someone who is, who who knows who can cut through to the ridiculousness of the paradigm. Like that's what I want. Uh, it especially anchored in the reality of what the situation is in the in the reality of this universe. And 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 this is the great. It's the sort of great like oxymoron of the whole thing of like grounding a guy who dresses like a bat to be the hero is that you kind of have to have someone who points out to him how ridiculous that is. To, to be his key villain, right? And so that's what I love about it. And I, I think that that, uh, you know, I, I think that that lack of motivation, that's, you know, that's what the great villains of our time are. Like, you know, Hannibal Lecter likes to eat people. 
And, you know, he may have had some childhood trauma or whatever, and Thomas Harris tried to, you know, George Lucas ruin it in some, like, pre-writing. But at the end of the day, he's still a guy who just likes it. He just likes it. <laughs> he like that, that, that's inexplicable. And so for me, when I look at the Joker, like, the minute that Heath Ledger is on screen, it is... Uh, I, I couldn't tell you how soaring it is and like what has been so tiresome. It's lovely to talk to you guys, but what's been so tiresome since the release of Joker last year is like all these people going, this is the best ever. It's even better than Heath Ledger. It's like, just stop, you idiots. Yeah, that's, I mean, just, I don't want to be rude, just, but that's fucking bonkers just, for I, people I, to say out loud. I do briefly want to say, though, that this, I think what you just said, though, speaks also, at least for me, to some of the like, um, the friendly arguments that I've had with Liam over text about this. So, I am not denying that this film is like meticulously crafted. It is amazing. It's super. It's super Perf- fucking entertaining. Perfect. Heath Ledger is amazing perfect. in it. He's clearly the best fucking part in the film. Liam, it is not fucking Gary Oldman. <laughs> but that, but that also to me is like an, th- those are aesthetic arguments, and I think right. those at least to me are separate uh, to some degree from like the political arguments or the ideological arguments. Yeah, absolutely. So I am not saying that this film is not an amazingly well-made film and like super entertaining and just like, yes, I, I, I can watch it. I'm sure I could watch it like once, you know, go come back to it multiple times in the future and still be entertained. But that to me also doesn't, let's say, discount the legitimate, let's say, political critiques that one might have of this character. I, I think it's the, the, but my, my, I guess my foundational thing is, I think absolutely nothing, no argument about the film's quality, like the discourse on quality could ever like really count to what a political argument is because it is what it is, right? Like you, it's people's readings and where you're coming from and different political readings from different countries, different, you know, areas, you know, whatever, you know, you can look at, you can look at anything like that. But I just think also that when it starts to bridge from the abstraction and the fact that the character has no motivation, like you, uh, I think you have to address in any argument that that's, that's an that's an entertainment law as much as it could be a political reading, right? Because like the fun is the fun is the chaos. Like everything about yeah. him is not only chaos in action, it's chaos in construction. So then you go, oh, okay, and then cool. Like read through the political, you know, uh, the political reading of that. But I just think it's like you have to think about functionally. It's a it's a it's a it's an entertainment. It's like it's it's a it's a driving force in the construction. He is, yes, as a character, he is far more terrifying because he has no motivation, without yes, question, that yes. I totally agree with. I think there are also two really interesting moments that that highlight kind of a joke, the Joker's point of view, and, and I think that's what's impressive about Nolan is that he can give you a character's entire history. Like, you know, the thing that always gets talked about in this film is how the Joker is able to be like, do you want, says, like, do you want to know how I got these scars? And then he tells a fake story, but... Those are interesting, but he's also got these incredible moments, two of them. One is when he says, when he's kidnapped um, the first, one of the, one of the Batman pretenders, and he says something like, if you want order in Gotham City, Batman must take off his mask, yes. which I think is a really interesting kind of statement of what he believes, which is like, as long as there is this vigilante, and of course, vigilantism is such a theme of the films, that's a really key moment in the film. And of course, the other one is the moment with, Harvey Dent when he says nobody panics if I say a gangbanger is going to get shot or um, a, a busload of soldiers are going to lose their lives. But if you say you're going to kill one mayor, then everyone you know loses their mind. And it's such <laughs> yeah. like a, a key reading to who the character is in terms of his like 
I don't even know if it's like um, that he's an anarchist, but he's just kind of commenting on on the way that that he's shaking loose a kind of apathetic yeah. quality of of how people view their like the, what's going on in the world and what's going on in their city. Yeah. And I think that that like those moments can't be discounted in terms of how they what they happen to say about the character in general and about the film and, and what the film has to say. Um, and I also really love the moment in the boat at the end when uh, Tom, uh, Tiny Lister takes the device and throws it out the window and that shitty dude is like, let's blow up these prisoners. They made their choices. <laughs> I think it's all really, really interesting dynamic filmmaking in those in those moments. So they really work. That stuff really works for me. I don't view it as... Yeah, I don't mind that the Joker doesn't have an origin because I think that he's defined in, in such a Nolan-esque way through action. This film really defines, I mean, Nolan's films define their characters through act or in action in the case of some of the other films. But I think that that really, really works. Um, let's talk about, do you guys want to talk about Bruce Wayne? Let's talk about Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne. So what are, what do you guys, th- what versus, I feel like every element of this movie really, Everything about this movie is a big improvement to me on Batman Begins, which is a movie I really like. But this is just like, in terms of the cinematography, in terms of the editing, in terms of all those elements. But the thing that blows my mind, one of the things that blows my mind about it is how much more subtle Christian Bale is able to do the same things in this movie that he was doing in Batman Begins. I think like the moment in the movie when he's like, oh, I own the restaurant and he gestures at the people is such a more clearly defined beat than in any of the, the Bruce Wayne being a douche beats in the in Batman Begins. So yeah, I'm curious what you guys think about where does this rank? Where does this rank in your Bruce Wayne's Blake? Yeah, look I I I love I love what he's doing. I think he's um he's very confident. It's funny that you say he was dialed down because I think that that's what he was going for. He wanted to make Bruce Wayne more effortless in this movie. And it's so funny, like you hear interviews even talking about it now because so many people are so anchored to the Joker in this film that he's like, I kind of wish I was doing more. You know, I wish I was like, you know, putting some more heat on the ball, so to speak, you know, like a little bit of, a little bit of mustard on there because the Joker is the thing that stands out. And what he's doing is withdrawing like Bruce Wayne as an individual, as an identity behind the scenes. Um, Oh, sorry. Bruce Wayne is more effortless in front of the scenes. And then Batman, whether he's masked or unmasked, it like, there's so much more of Bruce Wayne being Batman in this movie, whether he's dressed as Batman or not as Batman, that I love. So, for example, the moments where he dressed, he's just in his motorcycle gear and he's investigating stuff in his bunker with Alfred and then he goes out and investigates the the scene, that's still Batman. Because, like, Batman's three guys. Like, there's Bruce Wayne, fake Bruce Wayne, then there's Batman with the cowl on, and then there's kind of, like, this middle who Bruce Wayne really is like when he's in the bunker with Alfred, like that's also kind of not quite Bruce Wayne and nor is it Batman. It's this like third thing. So he's got this great way of then portraying these three different entities, the both of Batman and the Bruce Wayne are the showier ones. I like the unmasked Batman, the guy who's thinking and tinkering and, you know, thoughtful. They're the, they're the great scenes. And that's where, He's such a great complimentary figure because he's very good at like bringing out and eking out these awesome, you know, supporting performances, you know, like, you know, Michael Caine's size of Dangerine speech, you know, like all that stuff is just so, I, I eat it up. I love it. Yeah, it's it's super strong. I also think the moment when he's listening to Dent talk about uh, Julius Caesar, and I think uh, Caesar's an interesting 
character and play and history to think about in terms of this movie. But when he's talking about how the Romans elected one man and it cuts to Christian Bale and he's just watching him in that moment, he's that third guy. He's that guy who's like, holy shit, this is, this is the thing that could change this for me. And that's what makes the ending of the movie so tragic. And I think that one of the, the best performance moments in the entire movie, and we can debate the, the, the Batman voice uh, to death, but that last scene where he's confronting Dent, uh, Aaron Eckhart, who's so phenomenal in this movie. Every time I watch it, I'm more impressed. That's that moment where the Batman and the Bruce Wayne identities collide when he's talking about how it wasn't just Harvey Dent that lost everything. That really, I think it's a very moving, that final scene is incredibly disturbing, but it's also remark that that final confrontation is so remarkable because it's so moving and it's so disturbing simultaneously. And I feel like that the movie kind of weirdly achieves this like great tragedy that I've never seen in a, in a film of this type because all this kind of hope is lost. And I think that that's really amazing. And it's where that, that Bruce Wayne Batman characters collide so successfully. Yeah. I forgot. Uh I forgot how good a job the film does making Harvey Dent be kind of this like in between character between Batman and the Joker and watching it again. Cause it's been a really long time since I've seen it, but watching it again, that became like way clearer to me. I was like, Oh yeah, obviously that's what like two faces trying like what two faces you don't watch this movie this. like once a year what is wrong with you what I, else are you watching <laughs> zodiac like, pasolini just, are you just watching pasolini over and over you again pasolini like, just Sallow and zodiac just on just constant like loops it makes sense yeah. i mean except for the pasolini um, george is just watching only god forgives on a loop <laughs> in neon lights in just neon lights Writing, writing letters, just, writing letters to to Nicholas Winding Refn just over and over again every crying. day. I have crying, crying his eyes out. Yeah, I have a twenty four hour Zodiac project going where I've slowed down Zodiac to in the last twenty four oh hours. Oh my god, that sounds, But it's only the again. last scene. It's only the last scene. <laughs> it's only the last. Yeah, twelve minutes. <laughs> it sounds like a great idea. Um, let's let's get right down to it. Gary Oldman as Jim Gordon in this movie. <laughs> What's what stood out to me and I don't I don't know what you guys think, but there's the moment in the movie where he's having the debate with Eckhart and he says, you know, I don't I'm not allowed to be an idealist. I do the best I can with what I have. And I think that that is such a key line to understanding what this movie is about because And it's super I reactionary, think that, yeah, of course. Yeah. You're super reactionary. Shut up. <laughs> because I think that's what I think that is actually, I think that the, one of the things that this movie has to say is that like, it's an imperfect world that we're all living in. We've created these structures for people to exist in. They're not working. They're also maybe the best we can do in our, in our present conversation. And I think that it's one of the reasons I think Gary Oldman is the best thing about the movie is he has this kind of like world weary quality. That's like, there's no, there's no right solution to any of these problems. I'm just existing. And I think that that's like key to understanding what the movie has to say. And George already shook his head and went, (laughs) 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 so we'll see. We'll see. We'll see if there's an agreement or next time, George, can you please put that? (laughs) Can you please put that on mic? (laughs) I'll try. <laughs> as he sips his tea. Um, but I think Gordon is the key to understanding what the movie has to say, ultimately, to some extent. To me. George. Silence. Oh, is it my is it my turn to go? No, I mean it's just it's I mean All right, Blake, go ahead. Thank you. Well, it's just because it's I 
there's just so much going on in this film. It is so packed. And I, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that Gordon's character in, in a way is kind of there to very, um, very much align with what Batman is meant to kind of represent, if that makes sense. So I always saw kind of Gordon's character here as kind of just a mouthpiece for what Batman is attempting to do. Mm. Matt zola is a wonderful critic um, and uh, editor-at-large uh, editor or editor-in-chief of com. Usually, right now, it's Brian Tallarico, who's also extreme talent. But Matt, um, Matt, Matt is a guy I've spoken to a couple of times, and Matt has a theory which I love, which is whoever says the title of the movie is who the movie is about. And so, oh. so, so, uh, there's a great reading of this thing to talk about Gordon's worldview, because if you think about his trajectory from Batman begins to now, he's a guy who was operating in a corrupt system, was a lone incorruptible force at that time. And just was kind of like having to turn the other cheek just for self-preservation. And in this iteration of Gotham, especially with Harvey Dent there, he's actually been granted a significant amount of power, um, to change it for good. So like to culturally, when we talk about the internal culture of the Gotham PD, which like Nolan famously just said, like they're just a, as a corrupt force as any of the criminals in the city in Batman Begins, which kind of made sense to why Gotham was so screwed. Um, and so you get him in this talking about the restoration of the order and, and working with Harvey Dent and, you know, the, again, finding sort of kinship in this other incorruptible force and now like a legitimate incorruptible force because you've got, there's a great triumvirate, right, of like Gordon, Harvey, Batman, and how those guys work together, and then obviously the you know the relationship with the Joker, and then with Two Face. So yeah, I think there's a reading here. You know, I haven't haven't like gone completely deep on it that talks about him being the character because um, Batman Begins is never actually that line is never mentioned in Batman Begins the movie, so you know that that wasn't there. Um, but except when Batman says "I begin" and he jumps I, off the roof, <laughs> that's in the director's cut. Um, but I think that there's this, there's 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 definitely a reading to say that. I, I I love Jim Gordon as a character because he's he's very much a morality, and it's also like what Jim gets to do is the Joker gets to tell. Batman what he is and how ridiculous he is and then Jim Gordon gets to tell him why he matters and so I I, I find him to be so essential but uh, you know with great films there is an alchemy there is something that that is that you cannot take like I can't take Jim Gordon out of this movie nor can I take Alfred out of this movie nor can I take Eckhart Stant early or late out of this movie and think of you know who's not playing a really key role because I think they're all doing these they're all doing these things and it's all about moral barometers and that self-deception. And so, yeah, I, I find him so essential to all of these movies. Um, um, but, but he's He's kind of the heart and soul of these movies a little bit. And I, I think that, I think that the thing that's interesting, George, is I don't, I don't really necessarily view him as a mouthpiece because I think, I think he stands in the, in the, in the intersection between the sort of idealism, the glorious idealism of, of Harvey Dent, which is like something that, is meaningful and something to aspire to versus the kind of like, I mean, I think the thing that we always keep having to come back to is the idea that ultimately Batman is a fascist that beats mentally ill people and throws (laughs) them in jail. So something like if we're going to read the ultimate and this movie flirts with that in ways that I don't think not even flirts with that directly kind of confronts that in my mind. And I think that 
you see someone like Gordon who's world weary and has to deal with tape with the, the red tape of doing things and like wants to do right by the world. And I think that it's, it's just such a, it's such a, it's such a, it, to me, the whole thing is about like being between those two worlds. And he personifies that so effectively because he's a, and it, this is, this is to golden to Gary Oldman's credit, like from that very first moment and begins when he puts the jacket on young Bruce Wayne which is why one of the few moments that really resonates with me and rises is when, uh, uh ba- I like I was in the movie theater sobbing my eyes out when <laughs> when Batman says like sometimes all it takes is like a warm j-, like whatever it is like he's he, I think he's a little bit wasted in rises but he has that incredible moment at the end of the film that I think is so beautiful because he's 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 kind of the everyday guy in that movie in terms of what he represents to the story and how I, we can't works. we can't dive too much into rises this will be a five-hour podcast it's just gonna you know i know god we might have to have you back <laughs> the well, r- rises yeah. is thing, a whole other question one thing Liam, though you've been saying uh, a couple of times is that you are these films and the batman films in general are interesting to you when they're very much about gotham city so i think also what i kind of meant about him being like a mouthpiece is that he's also very much i think kind of like a representation of what like gotham city is supposed to be at any kind of given moment so i think he's also kind of yeah he almost like in a weird way kind of funk at least maybe in this film and i mean you know and i do have to think about it a little bit more because it was just so kind of focused on the dynamic between batman and the joker seeing it again is to just think about the role he plays as a kind of greek chorus He's he's yeah he's a Greek chorus. He also to me reads as Brutus from Julius Caesar. Huh. He's kind of the character in the middle who's exhausted and like, yeah. <laughs> I know what I have to do, and I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. Sure, you know? yeah. And, and I I think that 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 moment when he when he destroys the bat signal, God, Gary Oldman is a fucking incredible actor <laughs> because that moment he's pretty is so fucking rich. Awesome, yeah. He also is able to say the dark night and like get goosebumps rising in every part of your body as opposed to just very good like, ending. Oh, okay. Very good ending. Amazing ending. <laughs> um, every time I watch this movie, I'm more blown away by Aaron Eckhart. And I think yes. that Harvey Dent yeah. is such a, is such a cow, like the, the, what's the, he's kind of like the, the cowboy of the movie in the sense, that, but like the kind of classical Gary Cooper cowboy, like he punches the villain, he kisses the girl He's so believable as the overconfident, smart, accomplished shithead who, who, but who's ultimately right. Like you want, you kind of want to fight the guy because he seems like the guy that would beat somebody up in high school, but has like grown into an actual human being. And his fall is so <laughs> like perfectly stabilized in the film. I just, I just found it so incredible to rewatch it and think a little bit. And I've heard people say that like there's, there's, there's this movie is a little bit of the reflection of like the Obama years. And I'm wondering what you guys think if, if it reads that way, because I've heard people compare. I'll, I'll let George take that, but I'll just say with all great movies, you have actors and performers who do to, who make choices that is absolutely sincere and earnest for the point of the character right. that you can then totally take the piss out of with your friends after you watch it. And when you love it, like I cannot, <laughs> I cannot say enough, like Rachel, Rachel, no, like it's the, it's a really, it's so fun to do that impression. Like, I don't want to do it any more loud to blow people's ears out in this podcast, That's but that is so such good. a fun impression to do with your friends. Like, oh, oh, oh. Or the moment when he goes, when he's like, say it, say it. <laughs> it's just, you know, look, 
I'm I'm just gonna go right there and say it. Like you know, you're allowed to love something and take the absolute piss out of it. Yeah, and of I, course. For that that reason, I yeah. love his performance, but I also really love when it's like no, no. It's like, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's good. He really, he really he's, blows it. He's given it. He is. He's given it in that moment. It's good. Yeah, he really. It's it's kind. Of, I feel like maybe. He like came in and read, and Christopher Nolan was like, "Don't say anything. Shut Bigger. up, you blonde, Bigger. you blonde, you blonde hair beauty. Bigger. Shut up. Let's just do Bigger, this. louder, uncut. Do it." But I think it's a really, it's a, <laughs> I think it's a real, yeah. And then there's something amazing about his idealism. I, 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 it's an incredible take. I still wish we got to see Billy D. Williams's take on Two Face. I think that would have been incredible, but we, alas, we never got it. It's in the animated series, isn't it? That he's uh he's have you guys seen the Lego Batman? You've seen the Lego Batman? No, we actually no, have I've not seen the Lego Batman. Lego Batman. Billy D. Williams voices Two Face. Oh, that's amazing! Oh, wow! I did not it's know very that. Cool. That's next, George. Um, uh, uh, Harvey Dent. God, what what's there to be Harvey. said about Harvey, Harvey? About Harvey Dent? No, I mean again, I think I already just kind of said it that he's a very interesting kind of balance between these two extreme poles between like the Joker and what the Batman uh, represents. I just want to maybe hear a little bit more about what you said about how people read this as a film that in some sort of way, uh, like a prefiguring the Obama years. Oh, not that it prefigures. Cause I think it came out the same year, but well, I mean, it? Oh, but it was, it was what six months. Well, just that he represents this kind of idealistic figure that, that people then lost faith in or that the, one of the, the the big things about the film that I think is amazing is, is the idea of the need to lie to create a yes. mythology that keeps sure. people. Um, and then obviously, you know, the idea that they, they make up, they, they lie. Batman becomes the, the hero that they becomes the villain so that Dent can remain. The hero is such a like timeless idea about how we represent, how we, how we're, we, we understand narrative in terms of like how we, we understand. Um, There's, the, sorry to interrupt. There's two. There's no, two please. kind of. Fi- there's two films that come very close to one another. And on reflection, when you talk about idealistic figures and just being inquisitive about them, so like I think that the readings that I've heard about Dent as this idealistic figure is going. You can't just trust a single figure. And similarly, mm. a film that was kind of derided, or at least not nearly as appreciated as it should be when it was released, is um, Australian filmmaker Andrew Dominic made a film called Killing Them Softly. It starred Brad Pitt. <laughs> Um, Ray Liotta um, and the inimitable James Gandolfini. It's an absolutely incredible film. And at the end of the film, there's a monologue from Brad Pitt's character where he is talking about, you know, he's talking to and about like the hope that is pouring out of the screen in a television broadcast of one of the Obama rallies and speeches. And he basically says and concludes and just goes, you know, and I don't give, I don't care what this fucking guy says, pay me my money. And like at the time when this movie released, people were like, oh, that's really bleak, you know, no hope, whatever. But it has aged beautifully. <laughs> like The cynicism has aged beautifully of like, yes, we can be hopeful for individual figures, but it takes way more than an individual. It takes systemic things to, to enact change over a long period of time. And so you can't necessarily trust that it's just all going to be hunky-dory and beautiful and, and, and seamless. And I just don't think people were ready to have that dialogue with this movie. And I think also that's, that's part of that reading with Harvey Dent, right? It's like, there are these figures, they are going to be questionable. We are going to have to tangle with that. No one is perfect. And Nolan has to make that an extreme. Of course, it's a guy who like kills people and has half his face burned off and makes that all the more problematic to wrestle with. But it's, it's those, I think both of those ideas, you know, killing them softly so much more overtly about that. But I think that, you know, that's potentially a reading of that. 
you know, it, uh, let's just not completely be taken with that. Yeah, it's a, it's very interesting earlier in the film when Dent kidnaps or or grabs that guy um, David Dalsmachian, the actor who's so good in his brief moments in the film, and kind of interrogates him. And Batman finds him, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And it kind of chips away at the kind of like armor that is Dent as the like high high minded, um, you know, completely uncompromised political figure. So it's it's one of the great things about the movie is it sort of it cracks away it it, it does away at that armor earlier in the film, and I think that that's. I think that that it's it's really you know at the end of the day it, it suggests more nuance to the character than than what is initially there, um, and I think that yeah, I appreciate I mean, that, that a lot. That seems pivotal, obviously, to show that when he does turn into Two Face, there's something already there to suggest that he can become this like maniacal, homicidal, like maniac. Totally, yeah. Let's talk about very briefly Lucius Fox and mass surveillance <laughs> because I think it's such a well, it's such a small topic. A mass surveillance. To Small topic, real quick, but the idea of him being like, you know, uh, in terms of that scene where he's like, "I'll help you this one time, but consider this my resignation. I'm quitting." If but I'll be back for the third film in the franchise. Well, he doesn't quit because he types his name into the computer and the computer shuts down. And uh, because it's one of those moments where Batman's like, "I'm just going to do this this one time. I'm only going to do it. Now. I will only, only torture some people." <laughs> <laughs> it's that this is the most overt political thing for me in this entire film, which is that, you know, we've just been in an environment with George Bush and having, you know, crazy threats, crazy irrational threats happen on the homeland, which you then have to respond to. And you might do, do things that have to then sacrifice people's liberties, personal liberties. But Bruce Wayne has the foresight to say no, like, and this is his goodness of like, I'm going to do this and I'm doing it once and I'm catching him and he's gone and it's done. I don't need to do this for anyone else. I need to do it for him because he's an impossible out of the paradigm thing that exists. And this is how I have to respond to it. So like, I think there's so much more of like a political reading on this for that. Cause like he has to do it other than the fact that it looks cool because he can see through the building with his like light up Batman eyes. Like that's like, like bat sonar. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, like that, you know, uh, and, you know, all props to Batman and Robin for firstly introducing Batsonar or whatever. Or, or, I can't even remember those two and second Bat movies. And shark repellent spray. Never course, forget the yeah. shark repellent spray. It's very important. Yeah, I mean, it, it reads really interestingly. George, I don't know what how how you felt watching that or seeing that this time. Well, again, well, again, it's yeah, it's one of the most overtly political moments in the film. But again, I also think there is a certain kind of troubling. I was never a fan of it, but people who saw a lot of Twenty Four, for example, and different kind of dynamic, but yeah, Twenty Four, Twenty Four is like yay. Yay, waterboarding the show. Yes, yeah. But but the, from what I've heard of it, there was always like, well, I don't want to torture this person, but I have to. And it's couched in these kind of morally ambiguous ways, but it's always like the right thing to do. And the same thing, watching this again, it's the same thing, where it's like, I don't want to do this like mass surveillance project, but I'll only do it the once and then it'll be done. And I think just kind of the whole like having your cake and eating it too is also again, a way to delve into like the, to basically say like, it's okay to do this as long as you're doing it. As Blake said, like at those moments where one is like potentially outside of the paradigm or where let's say martial law has been declared. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's okay. So you know what's so cool about this movie and like, I think about it in retrospect is like, 
we're talking about martial law, mass surveillance, political figures of hope that are deeply questionable, corrupt systems. Batman's girlfriend dies. A guy's face gets burned and he's like killed, like trying to enact vigilante justice on Batman. And it's like, it's just, it's just jam packed with all things that like, when you look at them in individual bite-sized chunks, you're like, how the hell is this a comic book movie that made yeah. $500 million in America? It's like unbelievable that it like, it has all this stuff. So yeah, like I think I would have never had that surveillance reading until later. And like, I've just been reading for one of my projects, like Edward Snowden's permanent record, um, his novel permanent record. And I'm just like, huh? Yeah. Like that's a, uh, <laughs> that's a reading that happened in a, you know, a mass budget Warner Brothers yeah. film. <laughs> like, and all know, that shit yeah. with Batman. Like the Snowden stuff, the prison stuff. We're talking years after this film. So it's really fascinating, obviously, again, like how plugged in this film is to clearly like what the George Bush administration was doing. And obviously kind of like the implications of it to come afterwards. Totally. I think that one of the greatest achievements of this whole trilogy um and I, I very quickly pulled up Scott Tobias's review of The Dark Knight Rises, um, which is, I mean, Scott Tobias is the best. And this review... He's very good. Uh, ...is so good. And he has a line at the end where he's talking about um, that there's a catch-all quality. There's a ca- It's regarding Rises, but I think it, it applies here. There's a catch-all quality to the politics of it. The Occupy movement could be viewed here as a unifying force or order-upending menace, but no one seems content to let his popular entertainment double as a Rorschach test. And I think that that's ultimately what works so well about this movie, is that you can walk out having a multitude of reactions to what it means. And I it's so... To your point, Blake, it's so astonishing. Like It's, it's really one of those films where midway... Th- like. You're watching Two-Face say to Jim Gordon, tell your boy it's going to be okay, lie, before he shoots the kid in the face. And you're like, I'm watching a comic book movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, in, in... And other times you're like, man, I hope, you know, I really hope it works out for Happy and Aunt May, you know, like I really, you know, like yeah. that's, that's what I feel when I watch Marvel movies, you know, it's just a different, there are different a muscles, being, opera. a little bit of different muscles being flexed. Yeah. Look, it's, it's fascinating. Roger Ebert does, yeah. Roger Ebert's two reviews that year of comic book movies, Iron Man and uh, The Dark Knight, oh. I would strongly recommend to go to rogerebert.com and read it and to read anything that Matt Zolazitz has written on uh, The Dark Knight Rises, which is just great. I should go stuff. back and check it out. I mean, I'm excited to rewatch that because I, I have not historically been a fan of it, but I'm wondering if like last when we did Philip Seymour Hoffman last year, I rewatched The Master and I was totally blown away by it. And I was one of those movies where I, was like, I don't movies. know what I missed the first time I saw this movie, but I was um, uh, I found it uh, really amazing that time. Um, Were you drunk? Uh, we want, <laughs> I, I, no, here's what I was. Here's what I was. I was. Is that the one you fell asleep in? Twice? Fell asleep twice, twice because yeah. I was jet lagged. I had been in the UK and I'd come back and I went the day after I got back and I fell asleep. And then I went and saw it three days later. Cause I was like, there's I'm, I missed it. I missed it. And then I didn't watch it for years. Cause I was like, I don't think I like, and then I rewatched it. I was like, Oh my God, this movie's fucking perfect. Everything about this movie is that would withstand a minute by minute dissection. Sure. Mm. Sure. 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 Need a um, good ma- Need a good pun though, to go with the master, figure it out. Um, I want. I've got. I've got one more thing I want to talk about, and then we can. Wrap I can't reveal all my quick. secrets. I can't reveal all my secrets. <laughs> just. DM I like the idea them. that you have like this huge DM like them. list of just like films and all there like, is the a potential list. ways to fuck around with there, the title. <laughs> there is a list. <laughs> the Water Boy. Um, <laughs> Bobby Boo. Bobby Boucher Minute Podcast. Sorry. 
Mama said, you call that podcast Mama said. Mama said. Uh, what a is my favorite? minute by minute dissection of Adam Sandler's <laughs> masterpiece. Oh, Where football um, and high school meet. Look, um, it, no, the, 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 num- the number one, the number one would be, you know, it's Billy Minton. Billy Minitson would um, would have to be what it was, right? You'd have to like, okay, that's for your wow, listeners. Someone take Billy that. Nicky. I'm not doing it. I haven't got enough time. Uh, hey, would it would be Little Nicky. I would do a <laughs> I would do a 135 minute podcast or 135 episodes on Uncut Gems, like very happily. Uh, you would, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Oh, and Cold yeah, War? look, Travis Let's just wrote a really those. great article actually about you know Bright, on Brightwell Dark Room about it. Um, what is my favorite element of this movie? Yeah, what's your favorite um, thing about the movie? I think my favorite part of the entire film is just because of how so affecting it is, is the Joker's self-filmed, his self-filmed captive interrogation and then, and then sort of uh, demands. Uh, I, I just, where he's like, you know, where he's like, look at me like that. There is something, I mean, I think Heath Ledger, you know, may he rest in peace. Um, you know, this movie made him the biggest movie star in the whole world and an icon. Like I bought, I showed you guys a painting that is in my office that I bought in Thailand. And, uh, like, you know, I was on a beach in Thailand and there were like people selling, you know, pop culture paintings and stuff. And I bought it in Thailand. Like, and I, I, I rolled it up and put it in my pack. Like, um, you know, I think that Heath Ledger's performance there is his most primal. And what Nolan says about that particular scene is that it was something that he and Heath designed and he allowed Heath to direct how the scene would be shot and the energy of that. And I think there is something that is so profound when you really see actors and directors trusting the living shit out of each other to do something, to go for a thing and they are in sync because the collaboration of a director is like harnessing a great actor, like a, a, a really well cast person and a great script and then finding osmosis in where you can be organic in these gigantic planned things. Um, you know, and even Michael Mann in Heat talks about like he used to, you know, do five or six takes of what was the script. And then when they did it, you know, it, particularly for Pacino, they'd go, let's do a wild one. Like, he's like, cool, you can do as many as you like. He'd do five or six in the can. Usually by the fifth or sixth take, he's got it. And then he's like, cool. I was like, let's do a wild one. And, you know, that, you know, it's he's got a great ass. Like, that scene is a wild one. That's a wild one. It wasn't in the script. Like, it's just him going for it, right? So, so this scene for me, you know, obviously those two scenes are completely different energies, completely different intents, completely different readings. But the, the way that the structure of that scene coming, the news broadcast coming, you seeing it, it pivoting to like your first person experiential, like face to face with his handy cam footage. And then the hard cut to the, to Bruce Wayne's penthouse and this beautiful, ominous Hans Zimmer score. I just think that when I look at that sequence, I go, there's not a more powerful, chaotic, gut wrenching moment of this movie for me. And I just watch it over and over again. And I've probably got plenty of others that would come up and resonate later. You know, the ending is perfect. The opening, you know, the whole movie's, the whole movie's a massive riff with heat. Um, the, uh, you know, Nolan, Nolan's a Michael Mann obsessive to the point that like, 
Insomnia is a direct heat sequel. That is my theory. Like, go and watch that. That's what Nolan thinks Vincent Hanna does in his older career. He turns into a corrupt, self-deceptive person. Um, and then Heat is his tackling... Oh, sorry, uh, Dark Knight is him tackling Heat directly. Um, but I, I just genuinely think that that scene is as powerful as it gets. And it's 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 kind of why... It's kind of why Heath Ledger, his performance is endured. Like that, there is a, he's, he's exploding. He's exploding out of the scenes. He's unbelievable. It's, it's almost like a performance that exists outside of the movie. Like it almost has this, this, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you could, I know a a bunch of people who basically said, well, the only reason I saw the movie is because of Heath Ledger. And I mean, like, you know, I think that the great thing about the movie is that the movie is as good as Heath Ledger. I really, really believe that. Um, But uh, yeah, it's, it's on a whole other level. George, what about you? Uh, The opening high sequence. I think it's just so fucking meticulously well-crafted, the editing, the pacing, the the way in which it introduces the Joker and kind of lets us in on what the character is, mm. what the rest of the film will be about. And I think we briefly maybe said that it might be, at least for us, like the, the best five minutes of the entire Nolan trilogy. At least for me, it's kind of the, the part that really is like, man, this is so fucking intense and it's so beautifully. You don't love done. crashing this plane. Yeah. <laughs> Crashing this plane. I love that. It also have a bane tattoo. Also, are. I also have a bane tattoo, which I will yeah. show you guys. Wait, really? Yeah, I do. I, I do. I will show you. Take a screenshot from me taking off my shirt the... slightly, but yeah, you'll see need, it. We need a pic- pic- picture. It didn't happen. Picture. It you can, you can snap it. You can snap it and post it on your socials when I show you. Um, we, but we no, like, like, but no, I, I agree. The heist is great. I, I, I am less fond of the heist because it is the most direct ripoff of heat. It's like, such a, yeah. And, yeah. and and I would just, you know, look for anyone, like, if you watch them side by side, you'll be flabbergasted. You know, this is how you make $500 million out of heat. Like, you put Batman and the Joker in it. Like, that's li- literally. I would be curious to see if did Nolan, did man, I know that man and Nolan, or Nolan hosted a Q&A about heat at the DGA in LA a couple of years ago. I would sure love did. to hear what Michael Mann thought of, of the dark Knight, He loves it. He was like Chris in this, uh, in this, no, no, in the, in the, in the special editions of, uh, there's a special edition in Oz that came out a while back. I'm staring up to my shelf right now while I'm talking to you guys. Um, there's a special edition dark Knight limited series, Blu-ray that came out in Oz. It was a limited series. I don't know if it came out all over the world, but there was like 5,000 copies in Oz and I got it. And there's a documentary that features Michael Mann and Richard Donner talking about the dark Knight series and Donner talking about it too. But Michael Mann's not on there for a long time in the, in the grand scheme of the documentary, cause it's got lots of different participants. But one of the things that he says is like, he talks about the worldview, like Chris's worldview. That's yeah. what he's praising. He's like, Chris's worldview is amazing. Like to bring these characters into sort of a, well, like a tangible contemporary reality and make it feel so authentic and have things to say is what he liked about it. And I, I don't think that, I don't think that Michael would be, you know, shocked. Like Chris Nolan is the biggest fanboy of like, yeah, of, was, of, yeah. of Kubrick and Michael Mann. Like if you were to just right. put a put a put a Venn diagram and have Stanley Kubrick on one side and Michael Mann on the other side, like Chris Nolan's in the middle, and that's that's that is what it is. Yeah, it definitely reads that way. Um, my absolute favorite thing about this movie is is in a way it's the last confrontation between Oldman, Dent, and um, Batman. Unbelievable scene. Specifically, the line we you uh, we you wanted us to be decent men in an in, in an indecent time because it it speaks to this like, you know, we were talking earlier about how uh, Heath Ledger's performance almost exists outside of 
uh, the movie. Um, but that that roots it in so much of what I love about the movie, which is about these three guys trying to do the right thing in an incredibly compromised way. And I think it just it just achieves this other level. It's like operatically amazing. Um, Couldn't agree more. Fucking rules. This movie rules. This it movie does. rules. I think um, like, I think the kids say it slaps. It's <laughs> oh they do. They oh, those fucking kids. slaps. This movie slaps. Those um, kids with their lingo. Blake, this has been great. Yeah, Blake. Thank you for taking some time. Thank you guys. Thank you for yeah. having me. I really appreciate it. Like I don't I, re- I don't get to talk about Batman enough. Do you want to uh, come back? I would come back. Sure. Okay, come back. We'll we'll we'll, we'll We're here. Out. No, it'd be great. We're not going. No, we're can, literally I, not I going can, anywhere. I, I I haven't I haven't talked about him in uh, in in a long time. I've been too occupied with uh, 1976 journalists uncovering political fuckery and uh, and you know one of the great existential crime dramas ever made. So that's kind of where my headspace has been at. So you're not busy, is what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, two kids, two kids, columnists, three three podcasts, four on the way. You know, there's a lot happening. Four on the way. Uh oh, yeah. There's a few on the way. There's a few Whoa. on the way. Okay. Well, 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 we we look forward. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks again, Blake. Thank you guys for having yeah. me. Now, just while we've just got one last second, while you guys are closing out, oh, here we go. The Bane tattoo while we're recording. <laughs> George, do the do the video record. <laughs> this is uh, this is Uberbusters after dark. Whoa. We see it. We got it. We got it. We got it. Oh no! Oh no! Oh wow! Holy shit! How many sittings did that take? Just the one. It was about seven Just hours. The one. But Tom Hardy did it, which is the crazy thing. Is that Tom <laughs> Hardy was there in the mask. It was Tom like, Hardy. He was modeling for it. There you go. Um, well, I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. I'm Blake Howard. And this was? Uberbusters. <laughs> we were really civil, Liam. 